Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, a royal welcome for Prince Harry and Meghan in BC this week as they mark one year until the 2025 Invictus Games in Vancouver and Whistler. Games CEO Scott Moore, the longtime broadcaster, is with us for a preview. Celebrity dating coach Demona Hoffman has been coaching singles on how to find love online and offline for years now. She's the host of the Dates and Mates podcast. Her new book is called F the Fairy Tale. And to celebrate Valentine's Day, she joins me to talk about love and that often difficult companion topic, money. An 84-year search for a missing Canadian ship has been solved in the depths of Lake Superior. The Arlington was sailing from what is now Thunder Bay to Owen Sound in April 1940 wartime when it went down during a bad storm. The only death that day was the ship's captain. Why he went down with the Arlington has long been a mystery. We find out how the ship was located and what secrets it could reveal. But first, a day of Super Bowl celebrations in Kansas City turned to fear and panic when shots were fired, where tens of thousands of football fans had gathered. One person, a local radio DJ, was killed. At least 21 have been injured, including eight children. We get a law enforcement perspective on what security would have been like at the event, how authorities responded, and what the investigation will entail. And we head to Kansas City to get a sense of the atmosphere there tonight and how a community can overcome a day of happiness that turned to tragedy. I was watching some of this Super Bowl rally and parade in Kansas City. It's such a big deal for Kansas City that the Chiefs won another Super Bowl when all of a sudden, you know, it's hard to imagine sometimes who would open fire in an environment like that. But let's begin tonight with that developing story out of Kansas City at this hour, where a day of celebration really turned into scenes of panic as shots were fired, as thousands and thousands of people had gathered to watch a parade and a rally featuring the Super Bowl champion Chiefs today. Here is how the early moments of it were caught on camera as a reporter was uh, doing a live hit, live, a live report from the parade itself. Guys, 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 something's going on. Something's going on, guys. Now, this was just moments after the Chiefs had left a stage in front of the city's Union Station where the big rally was being held. Suddenly there were shots being fired. Uh, it was chaos as people who had gathered there, some 800,000 in total, uh, tried to flee to safety. Some made it, some did not. At least one person was killed. That's what we know at this hour. At least uh, 21, 22 others were injured, including many, as many as eight kids. Uh, there are reports tonight from the Associated Press that radio station KKFI in Kansas City says its DJ, Lisa Lopez, was the person who was killed during the gunfire. Here is Kansas City Fire Chief Ross Grundison. We had eight what we considered immediately life-threatening patients. We had seven with uh, life-threatening injuries, and we had six that were at minor injuries. Right. So you can tell that at this stage of the, you know, at tonight, we still don't know if there will be any more uh, people who, who pass away due to this. It's just, it boggles the mind when you watch these sorts of things. Uh, who would have done that? Why? There are a lot of questions tonight, obviously. Three people have been taken into custody in connection to the shooting. We don't know exactly who they are, or what their role may have been, police said, uh, including two people who officials say were armed when they were detained. Here's Kansas City Police Chief Stacy Graves. We do have three persons detained and under investigation for today's incident. 
again, it is early stages of the investigation. One of those people uh, was caught on camera being tackled by people who had attended the parade, by civilians, essentially. We don't know exactly who that person was or whether they were connected to this. But you just the chaos that ensued after these shots were fired, people were climbing over barriers. You saw the police coming in. Of course, there was a massive police presence there. Again, police don't know what the motive for this could have been. One person who flew in for the parade says it was scary being stuck between so many people running for safety. We got pushed all the way up to Union Station where they had gated everything off so you couldn't get in for the chiefs and everybody started jumping the um, rails and pushing everybody over. We got inside and we thought that, okay, it's calm now. We're inside. We'll be safe. Now, the Kansas City Chiefs organization said in a statement late today that it was saddened by the shooting and called it a senseless act of violence. It is the latest sports celebration in the U.S. to be marred by gun violence. Uh, There was a shooting that injured several people last year in downtown Denver as the Nuggets were celebrating their NBA championship and gunfire last year at a parking lot near where the Texas Rangers uh, were holding their World Series championship parade. Joining me now with more on this is Keith Taylor. He's a retired NYPD sergeant, uh, an NYCD assistant commissioner and adjunct assistant professor of criminal justice. Justice at John Jay College. Keith, thanks for your time tonight. Thank you so much for inviting me to your program. I imagine for someone with your experience and in your shoes, when you see these sorts of things happen, um, I mean, it must be a nightmare scenario for law enforcement. Big crowd, open, and no idea where that gunfire is coming from. Absolutely. Uh, now, there are a lot of resources that would be placed uh, uh, to support this kind of activity. And so even though there may have been this initial confusion, there would have been a rapid response uh, by law enforcement, by the other uh, entities that were there to help those who were uh, had fallen victim to this, this brazen uh, shooting of individuals. Yeah, I noticed that there were, I think it was up to 800 officers who, who were assigned to this. I mean, needless to say, there would always be a big police presence here. But the way these events are held, it'd be very hard to, to lock it down, so to speak. Uh, yes. And so there's a lot of planning that goes into these types of events. Of course, no plan is completely foolproof. And the best uh defenses are going to be challenged by individuals that are looking to defeat them. In this situation, it looks like these, you know, individuals decided uh, just on their own to, to just start shooting. Uh, uh, and, and there were a lot of individuals who were victimized as a result. Yeah. Tell me a bit about uh, about just the response. So you, this happens and you have a you do have a large police presence. We saw it unfold, as a matter of fact, because you could see police just moving out, coming over the barriers, uh, moving into where the shots had been fired from. There were snipers on rooftops and so on. Uh, but what happens when that sort of things happens? How, do, how what is the police response look like when this begins? Because as we saw, as usual, people were fleeing one way. Police were running back, running in the other way. Yes, uh, so you're going to have multiple uh, agencies, state, federal, and local, that are going to respond. You're going to have uh, different types of uh, 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 specialties within the, uh, the the response. So it's going to be everything from canine to uh, hazmat, weapons of mass destruction. There's going to be all kinds of folks, SWAT, uh, that, that respond in, 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 as a result of this taking place. Um, the The planning of this type of event would include a, a scenario where there, there'd be a mass casualty incident. So you're going to have also a significant resources in terms of EMS, 
uh, medical support and, uh, and fire as well. Uh, bomb squad, all kinds of different um, uh, preparations for um, the low, uh, the, the low um, uh, frequency but high impact kind of uh, event. Yeah, unfortunately, not as low frequency as it once was. It seems. Tell me a bit about about now in the initial stages of this when the response is happening, and I, I think we still don't know for sure what the motive was, but. Just about anything could be going on at that point, right? So, you, so one would suspect that that um, police are trying to make sense, authorities are trying to make sense of what's happening in those very early stages. Yes, at every level, federal, state, and local. So they're trying to determine if there are any uh, uh, credible threats that um, you know that foreign or domestic that could have been responsible for that, uh, and then once they're able to uh, rule that out, then they can look at sort of the the kinds of uh, just criminals sorts of behavior that um, that unfortunately is an epidemic in this country. Uh, so the 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 once they were able to determine that this is not due to some sort of uh, attempt to uh, terrorize the country, then they could you know deal with it uh, on a on a much more uh, common uh, sort of uh, uh, way. Tell me a bit about what, you, I mean, you must have seen these images by now. What were you seeing there? What were you seeing happening? I, I mean, clearly one of the things that really stood out to everyone was that uh, bystanders, people who had been there simply to take part in this, were seen tackling someone or who looked like they may have been involved. We don't know that for sure. Uh, but, but clearly people were putting their lives on the line, at least it seemed, to try to prevent people from getting away. I think we're going to, in the coming days, uh, see a lot of video and a lot of accounts about what happened and individuals who um, <clears throat> who, who really uh, went above and beyond to help others, uh, either you know tackling the perpetrators or tending to the wounds of the victims to help them uh, get get to uh, hospitals. So there, there's going to be a, a quite a bit more that we're going to learn about this. And I think, uh, at least I hope, that uh, our federal legislators will be spurred into uh, action because these types of incidents are unfortunately quite frequent. I think we're up to our 48th mass shooting so far this year. Last year, there were at least 656, which is on increase from the previous year. And uh, it is something that requires common sense uh, laws that uh, will uh, regulate the, the use of weapons while not violating the rights of American citizens. Indeed. Uh, so I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, for, for listeners who don't know, Missouri ranks 38th in the country for gun law strength, according to those who who monitor these things. Uh, you do have a huge crowd there. There's no requirement. Uh, you Residents don't have to have a state permit or licensing before buying or owning a rifle, shotguns, or handguns. So presumably in a crowd of that size, a certain number will be armed, right? That just goes without saying. That is correct. And uh, because there, we have an issue both with um, the regular, the, the, uh, having those common sense laws for legal guns, we also have this incredible problem with illegal weapons. Uh, the ones that get into the hands of criminals 
as well as the ghost guns, which have been a, uh, a significant problem, not just for ordinary crime that you'd see, the robberies and, and so on, but also for organized crime, which uh, really benefit from uh, these uh, um, disparate uh, laws throughout the states, as well as um, the ease at which they're able to um, raise revenue by selling these guns or operating them to commit crimes. Guys, 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 guys. Something's going on. Something's going on, guys. Yeah, that was the sound from the rally this afternoon in Kansas City to celebrate the Kansas City Chiefs' Super Bowl victory. And that descended, as you could tell, into chaos and panic when there was gunfire. Uh, Gunfire erupted in the crowd. One person has been killed, 22 injured so far that we know of. It could be a little bit higher. Uh, Eight children as well reported. We don't know the condition of many of those injured, although firefighters say about eight or nine uh, were in a critical condition when they were brought in. Uh, still waiting for more details on that. Keith Taylor has been with us this half hour. He's a retired NYPD sergeant. He's also an adjunct assistant professor of criminal justice at John Jay College. We've been talking about sort of the police response to this and the complexities of it. Um, Keith, given where it happened, I, I suspect the investigation will both be complicated in the sense that that, that is a very fluid uh, crime scene. At the same time, there were lots of witnesses, lots of uh, lots of police there, and, and no doubt uh, all kinds of video was taken of this, one would suspect. Indeed. And there were federal assets that were already there uh, when it occurred and before it occurred. So Department of Homeland Security, FBI, other uh, federal assets who will be able to quickly help the local and state investigations uh, work collaboratively to take this massive <clears throat> crime scene and and have it uh, processed. Uh, the federal government in particular has uh, enormous resources that they, they can use. Um, and, and certainly this is a, is a, is a clear example of uh, where that would be needed. Just based on your experience from what you're hearing so far, and I don't want you to speculate too much, but what is your best guess at a motive here? It doesn't seem like a national security issue, at least at this point. It seems like something far more unfortunate, tragic, and sadly mundane. Uh, well, you know, it can range from simply being, as you just described, a dispute between two individuals who are armed and um, and poor impulse control, and they decide to shoot at each other. That certainly is uh, one possibility. Uh, but it could be other possibilities as well. Um, and, and so it's going to require uh, a thorough investigation, um, looking into the background of the individuals involved, see if there were others that were associated with them, uh, trying to find out if there was some sort of uh, information that is available online uh, that could help gain some insight into the motivation for this to occur. Um, and, and, you know, it, unfortunately in the United States, we've gotten sort of used to mass shootings, mass killings because of the frequency of them. And so, again, I cannot emphasize enough the importance of our federal legislators to um, work on laws that will make the populace safer uh, and more secure. Is, should, we, should it be reconsidered in the U.S. at least whether these are worth holding now? 
if what are we're holding just the, the rallies that the big these big sort oh. of events where you bring hundreds of thousands of people onto the street together no no we're, we're going to continue to have rallies um and we're going to continue to live our lives but uh because you can't live in fear uh, but there certainly is more that can be done uh by those who are in positions of authority to make a difference. Uh, it's, it really is a national issue and needs to be as addressed as such. That is why you have such a ver- variety of uh, laws in the states, in, in the United States. And, and so there has to be some sort of <clears throat> federal solution that uh, maintains some sort of uniformity and consistency between uh, each of the states that are uh, of this union. Right. Right. All right, Keith, thanks so much for your weakest. Oh, sorry. We're only as strong as our weakest link. Indeed. There seems to be several of those weak links these days. Keith, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much. All of a sudden, people started crushing forward. Everybody started running. There was screaming. We didn't know what was happening, but this day and age when people run, you run. And so I put my arms around her, and we tried to push through so people wouldn't run on top of us. And there was a woman crying, saying something about somebody had been shot. Yeah, that was uh, one witness speaking to ABC News tonight who was at the scene of the shooting in Kansas City today during what had meant was meant to be a celebration of the Kansas City Chiefs uh, Super Bowl win on Sunday. So today was the big parade and rally, a day for the city to come together and uh, and celebrate a joyous occasion that turned into fear and panic and chaos and tragedy. One person has been killed, uh, 22, we believe, injured, perhaps more, eight of them said to be children. We don't know the extent tonight of uh, those injuries. We're still waiting to hear updates on those from authorities. Um, some 800,000 people had packed the cities downtown for these festivities, so it was jammed. And again, the investigation still in its fairly early stages tonight, so no word on what may have led to the shooting, if there was any motive at all. Motive, um, three people have been arrested. Uh, two of them were armed, apparently. It's not clear what involvement they had exactly, uh, but there were lots of images of bystanders taking down one person, again, Again, we don't know exactly who that was or what their role may or may not have been in all of this. Kansas City's police chief today acknowledged the impact that this will have, not just on those who were injured and the family of the one person who was killed, but on the many who saw firsthand a day of celebration turn into a day of tragedy. I just want to echo um, the mayor's thoughts and his prayers and also to um, acknowledge that not only the, the victims who were actually hit by gunfire but there are a lot more people who are going to be forever impacted by by what happened here today um you know as as people were running you know a lot of us law enforcement who are who are running towards the danger um also guided those who were in um in fear of their lives and that's something to be said of of how impactful today's event truly was 
Now, just to put this into some context, Kansas City has long struggled with gun violence. In 2020, it was among nine cities targeted by the U.S. Department of Justice in an effort to crack down on violent crime. In 2023, the city matched a record with 182 homicides, most of which involved guns, of course, uh, and they've been trying to crack down on that. Today, though, a reminder, uh, Missouri has very lax gun laws, at least by Canadian standards uh, and by U.S. standards to some extent. Uh, We don't know exactly what prompted this today, but 800,000 people were there, and all we know is that it is a day of it has been instead of a day of celebration and you can just imagine how uh joyous things were in kansas city following the chief's big win on the weekend and how um how much that will have changed tonight erin hambrick is there she's an associate professor uh in the at the university of missouri kansas city she joins us now erin thanks so much for your time tonight yeah thanks for having me yeah, tell me about. I mean, the first thing I thought when I saw where, where you taught was just wow, just the mood, the atmosphere there tonight. Because what a great forty-eight hours it's been for the city of Kansas City following the win on Sunday, and then the anticipation and the parade and the rally all seem to have gone off beautifully today. The weather looked pretty good, and then this happens. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's unbelievable, but sadly, in some ways, becoming a little more believable um, that. Sometimes times that are supposed to be most community affirming, times that are supposed to build community pride and resilience um, are now sometimes paired with disaster and tragedy. And, um, you know, being here, I've studied disasters for a long time, but, you know, being in a community at a time when it's hit, um, you know, it, it feels different. It, you kind of you feel that um, anticipation of good followed by the crush of um, what could have been without a tragedy like this. Tell me about that, because I, I've been in environments where, where tragedy has just unfolded, and it's, it's kind of hard to describe, but there's sort of a silence about it. There's like a heaviness that weighs, and it's hard to describe what it feels like, but you know it when you see it or feel it. Uh, what's it like in Kansas City tonight? You know, it's, it's much like you describe. I, I feel like a lot of the people that I speak to are, and shock is too strong of a word, but I think in kind of a state of surprise um, and um, disbelief and are are probably not processing all of the emotions yet that they are going to continue to feel. You know, I think especially when, when details are still unknown, um, it's hard for people to know where to land emotionally. Again, especially when you've been um, kind of ramped up for, for such a positive day, and then a turn like this comes so quickly. Yeah, that contrast you could hear from the witnesses who spoke about it, that that contrast you could hear to their voices from this sort of moment. You know, you're just moments away from having celebrated something, and all of a sudden there, there is this panic. For listeners who may not know Kansas City well, uh, I was mentioning some of the gun violence that's taken place there over the past little while. You mentioned earlier that people mightn't even be that shocked by this, and that says something. Um, yeah, why is that? Yeah, you know, I think I think there is a sense of enough is enough, um, kind of a sense of, of desperation, maybe of, of throwing their hands in the air. You know, I um, have spoken to a lot of people, both in my professional but personal community today, because that's what we do when bad things happen. We we social share and um, just being around people saying, you know, why why hasn't Kansas City been able to do something about this? And. Um, you know, why, why is it that we keep ending up on, on these lists 
despite um, asking for change, despite demanding change. And I don't think that people have totally given up. I don't think people um, have burned out and have completely said there's nothing that can be done. Um, but kind of in this immediate aftermath of what has happened, um, I think there's a lot of frustration and, and people don't know where quite where to put it. Where does the, I mean, when people are, I, I suppose at this stage of it, it's mostly just grief and, and, and anger and maybe some, some surprise, as you mentioned earlier. But wh- where, mm-hmm. where are people targeting their blame these days? Because, of course, here we are on the Canadian side of the border. We have our own issues with gun violence, but not, not that kind of gun violence uh, in public places yeah. like that in the same way, knock on wood. Um, where is the yeah. anger targeted when, when you talk to people? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Missouri is a very divided state politically. Um, you know, historically, we um, have uh, had people from all spectra, all political spectrums. Um, and so it really depends who you talk to. Um, and so, you know, people who, um, you know, a, a university professor might be likely to encounter in these moments are, are mad that we don't have better gun control and are mad that at least uh, you know, Kansas City as um, as a city, maybe we can't do something for the whole state, hasn't been able to do more, hasn't been able to enforce better um, regulation. Um, my assumption, and I've had some personal conversations with people who feel quite differently, um, who feel as if the, the blame is more uh, mental health, it doesn't have anything to do with guns. Um, and so it, it's a very challenging, uh, very bifurcated um, situation when it comes to trying to have conversations about this. Yes, uh, no doubt. We see those. We see those conversations, of course, even over here on this side of the border. We obviously witnessed them in the States. Tell me a bit about where this happened. I don't think, I mean, I, I was Union Station is obviously a well-known landmark in the city. Yeah. Uh, this parade, this is not the first, I mean, Kansas City is not having its first Super Bowl parade uh, of late. This would be a familiar event, right? I mean, this would have been something that, that Kansas people in the, in the area would know a lot about. People would come in from other parts of the state, even neighboring states to come celebrate. Um, this is something that, is, that has become somewhat familiar in Kansas City. And yet today, tell me just a bit about the space where this was happening. Yeah, yeah. So um, absolutely. I mean, Union Station is is a go to for big events, celebratory events. We hosted the NFL draft recently, right? And it was held right around Union Station. People have come to um, appreciate Union Station for its ability to host big celebrations. It's right next to the World War One monument. Um, it's a beautiful part of town. I actually live close to that part of town, uh, just to be close to the history and, and all of the action. And, um, you know, I when we talk about, you know, how to how to heal from these sorts of events, you know, we, we talk about taking back the space, you know, taking it back for the good. And I hope that that's something that we will be able to do as a community. I know from a personal perspective, I've spent a lot of time today, you know, thinking about all of the ways that Union Station has been special in my own family's life, things that I've taken my children to, things that we've celebrated there as a community. When the Royals win, when the Chiefs win, Union Station is lit up, right, in Kansas City colors. And it's um, it's a landmark, I think, that uh, provides hope and, and even value to um, to our city. I think people go to Union Station for events um, that make them feel a lot of pride and community connectedness. And even though now we have this really uh, potentially negative association with Union Station because of what has happened, 
I hope that we will be able to take Union Station back um, and that we will be able to find ways to memorialize uh, and remember and recognize what happened today, uh, but in ways that help us remain connected to those community values um, that are really embedded um, in that physical space. Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, I don't suppose you were there today, or you might have mentioned might have mentioned it earlier. But I'm sure you knew people who were. Yeah, to, tons of people who were. You know, you get um, you get texts and emails, and you know, so and so's child was nearby, within twenty or fifty feet of what happened. You know, how should how should they talk to them about it? How should they, um, you know, work and process through this? You know, and I'm I'm used to getting these kinds of requests. Um, when the disaster is further away from home, um, but it, it hits differently when it's closer to home, and there are um, there are real faces connected to those uh, requests. People that you know you're going to see in a couple of days, um, and um, now they will be carrying this with them the next time that you see them. All of a sudden, it sounded like fireworks, and we're like, oh, okay. And then my daughter yelled, get down, get down. So she grabbed me and pulled me down. I'm angry at what happened today. The people who came to this celebration should expect a safe environment. We had over 800 law enforcement officers, Kansas City and other agencies, at the location to keep everyone safe. Because of bad actors, which were very few, this tragedy occurred, even in the presence of uniformed law enforcement officers. That was Kansas City Police Chief Stacy Graves and a witness to all of this today. We're talking uh, with Erin Hambrick this half hour. She is in Kansas City talking about the events of today. Of course, you may have already seen that uh, today's Super Bowl parade and rally uh, celebrating the Kansas City Chiefs' consecutive consecutive Super Bowl win on Sunday was marred by uh, gunfire today. Someone opened fire. We don't know how many people or why. Um, one person has been killed, according to the Associated Press. That was a local radio DJ. Um, and there have been about 22 people injured, maybe more. Or eight kids, uh, AP was reporting earlier. Uh, the dust still hasn't settled on this. We don't know exactly what happened or why or what the seriousness of those injuries are. We do know that it's had a huge impact on a city that was meant to be celebrating today. Obviously, Aaron is someone who works uh, in this field as well when it comes to trauma and uh, <clears throat> dealing with these sorts of events. Uh, Aaron, when, when you look at what, what happens now, you talked about taking back things like Union uh, Station where this happened today, or at least in front of it. Um, difficult though, right, when it happens right in front of you. I gather there'll be stages to this. There'll, there will be an angry stage that should come, I suspect, fairly soon. Yeah, yeah. We we definitely talk about stages when it comes to um, recovery from traumatic, uh, potentially traumatic experiences. And, you know, this initial phase, these, these days, early days and weeks just after the event, um, really people tend to have a range of reactions and their reactions are not always the same day to day. Uh, so someone who might kind of um, start off as hypervigilant and very on edge after something like this might wake up the next day and find they're unmotivated. Uh, and it's almost as if they, they don't care about anything. Or um, one day they can't sleep at all and the next they find that um, they are, are very, very tired. Uh, some people will find that it, it might take them several weeks before they feel ready to um, cry. 
I think to your point, anger and frustration uh, can definitely be an immediate response, especially when uh, we kind of get our defenses up after something like this happens, right? We, we don't want it to happen to us. We want to env- be able to envision ourselves as safe. Even right now, I mean, there have been helicopters overhead all day, right? There's lots of right. potential reminders of what happened and, and cues that we might not um, be safe. Um, But, you know, eventually from, you know, two two to four weeks from now, um, hopefully people will start to settle back into routines. We know that's actually good for us uh, after things like this happen, um, seeking our socialization, seeking resources uh, that have been useful for us in the past. Um, But it can really take time before people are comfortable going back to a place uh, that they know something like this has happened. I don't think there's any point in rushing uh, any of that, but we also know that um, when events like this happen, when the community can come back together in very purposeful, um, meaningful ways to, um, to, to mark what happened, to memorialize, uh, to grieve and share together, that can be incredibly healing. And in fact, some of those experiences um, can really be far-reaching uh, and reach many people in, t- in the community emotionally. Um, most people who experienced this today won't need long-term therapy. Some could, uh, but most won't. But um, most will benefit from some of these community-based um, opportunities to get together uh, and grieve what has happened, but also to find value in celebrating with each other again. Yeah, the one thing that struck me, of course, the first championship celebration I would have gone to would have been a Montreal Canadian Stanley Cup parade back in the 70s. I must have been six or seven. And it was magical. So obviously, I thought a lot about I thought a lot about the kids today. Yeah. Oh, I I absolutely did, too. You know, um, I watched some of the parade in between work meetings today and um, seeing those kids who got to shake hands with their idols, their football idols. They, they waited in line for this, right? They, they placed so much value and meaning on this. And I think it is going to take time uh, for each child, for each family individually um, to work this through. Um, but people will. You know, when things like this happen, the most common response and reaction that humans have is resilience. Um, yes there is going to be stress and disruption and and prompts for meaning-making. These events prompt us to make meaning um, of our lives in new ways and ways we didn't expect. I think about the teachers um, who are going to greet children here locally tomorrow, children who left school on Tuesday. Most school districts actually didn't have school today because of the festivities. Who left school on Tuesday expectant of wonderful things and who will come back to school on Thursday um, confused about why they don't live in a safe world. And more than the therapists, it's going to be the teachers, the spiritual leaders, uh, the people who greet those children and provide some semblance of predictability back into their lives on Thursday um, who are really going to help do a big job of um, healing the city. Well, Aaron, uh, we're thinking of you tonight. Thank you for your your time and and sharing your story with me. And uh, yeah, we're all thinking of all thinking of Kansas City tonight, and hoping that this is um, you know that that today doesn't live in for too long in infamy, and that we remember what was the celebration was about uh, off the initially, and not not all that happened this afternoon. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. 
the Edmund Fitzgerald is probably the most famous ship to go down on Lake Superior uh, over the years. 29 people were killed uh, when it sunk during a fierce storm back in November of 1975, immortalized, of course, in that song by Gordon Lightfoot. It's estimated, though, that there are over 6,000 shipwrecks in the Great Lakes, uh, having caused an estimated loss of 30,000 lives. About 550 of those wrecks are believed to be in Lake Superior, many of which are still undiscovered. But one of those that was long undiscovered has now been found. The Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society and a shipwreck researcher named Dan Fountain announced Monday that they had discovered a 74-meter, 244-foot bulk carrier called the Arlington in about 650 feet or 200 meters of water. And it was about 60 kilometers north of Michigan's um, Queenaw Peninsula. Uh, here's what they had to say about the discovery. There was a tremendous amount of excitement uh, when uh, there was a realization that, in fact, there was a ship over 600 plus feet uh, on the bottom of Lake Superior. That is Bruce Lynn, who's with the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society. Now, this discovery was made by Americans, but this is, in fact, a Canadian story. The Arlington left Port Arthur, Ontario, now part of Thunder Bay, on April 30th, 1940. It was wartime, fully loaded with wheat, and headed to Owen Sound. That's quite a journey. It would have to go through the Sioux Locks and so on into Lake Huron. Uh, it was under the command of Captain Frederick Tatybug Burke. And he was a veteran of the Great Lakes. He knew what he was doing. But in the stormy early morning of May 1st, the Arlington went down. The crew, though, all made it off that sinking ship. Only one person went down with the Arlington, the captain, Captain Burke. The reasons why, because apparently he may have been able to save himself, the reasons why he stayed and went down with his ship have been a mystery for more than eight decades. Um, joining me now is Bruce Lynn, Executive Director of the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society, with more on what they found and what it means. Bruce, thank you for your time tonight. Ben, thank you for the invitation. This has been getting, as you mentioned, been getting a lot of attention. Um, what a remarkable discovery it was, though, and it came together over a pretty extended period of time, right? You know, it, it really did, Ben. We we work with a gentleman by the name of Dan Fountain. He's a uh, an independent researcher, shipwreck historian that's in the Marquette area of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. He's he's helped us on any number of other projects. He shared a lot of research with us, and this was one that, using some remote sensing data over time. He knew that there was an anomaly there, but he he wasn't exactly sure what it was. But he also knew that he didn't have the technology necessarily to go out and view this and really get a close look and see if, A, if something was actually there, and B, what was it? And that was where we came in. Because uh, just to, so listeners understand, I, I gather this uh, wreck was in about 200 meters, 650 feet of water, but 60 kilometers, 35 uh, miles from shore. And that's not an easy thing to find. You know, it, it's really not. And and there could be, again, there could have been a number of other wrecks that might have been there if something was there, period. Um, and there was some uncertainty to that. But we we did trust Dan just enough. Um, and again, he's helped us on so many levels. And Because it's a bit of a, to go from Whitefish Point to Copper Harbor, that's a bit of a trip. And our research vessel is not fast. And uh, to get the crew together and get everything else together that goes along with that, it it, it took a little doing. But in the end, uh, we were very happy because it was, in fact, a shipwreck. Tell me about that eureka moment where you realized that you were actually looking at something that might that might be quite defined. You know, what I can tell you is that, you know, we could be out there for days at a time 
And I will say this, the, the, you know, that's the busiest time of year for us at the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum. So often it's a little harder for me to break away and actually get onto our research vessel, but I love it when I do. And, you know, you could be out there for days at a time, 10, 12, 14 hours at a time, and you don't really see anything. And, and while it's lovely to be out on Lake Superior, it's far more exciting when you can actually, with this sonar system, it's a, a marine sonic technology system, when you can actually see something on the bottom of the lake and you can adjust the frequency and get a closer look at it, that is, is beyond exciting. And uh, it gets even more exciting when we put the ROV down on it. And now suddenly with the camera that's on that little robot that we have, uh, we, can, we can see a shipwreck. It's it's very, very exciting. I was just watching the video that you posted on your website, and I was excited watching it because you think, there it is. It's sort of sitting in this in the murky depths of Lake Superior, but it is clearly a ship and, and a big one. It, it is a big one. You know, I mean, it's, it's bigger, certainly, than a lot of the schooners. Um, as far as ships go, 1940, you know, this is World War II, uh, big steel-hauled freighters were moving about the lakes. Um, the Arlington was a, a canaler. It was about 244, is 244 feet long. So it wasn't, it wasn't huge by the standards of the day, uh, but still it was a formidable ship. And, uh, the captain was a formidable presence. Uh, you know, he, uh, interesting character. If you read about him, Fred Tatybug Burke. That's, that's, a, that's a, what a name that is. Fred Tatybug Burke. <laughs> I don't know where he got the nickname. I don't know what a Tatybug is. You know, the interesting side story to that is apparently as a child, he uh, apparently had a speech impediment okay. and his nickname was Teddy. And when people, when he, when he would pronounce Teddy, it came across as Teddy bug. And that became a nickname for oh. him, which also apparently he didn't seem to mind in his adult life. So that stuck with him. Tell me a bit about the Arlington itself, because Canadians will be interested to know, because of course there are, with all the ship traffic in the Great Lakes, specifically Superior, there have been lots of ships that have gone down over the years, but this was very much a Canadian vessel leaving a Canadian port heading to another Canadian port. That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, they were leaving uh, Port Arthur. Think of Fort William, Port Arthur, now we call Thunder Bay, or it is Thunder Bay, Ontario at this point. Um, and they were, they were headed across the lake that day. And, and really... There's a couple of things we have to think about. When they left port, they had three and a half feet of freeboard at that point. I mean, in essence, imagine you're standing on the deck of that ship. Three and a half below you, feet below you is the water. <laughs> so they really That's... didn't have a lot of freeboard at that no. point, but maybe not completely unusual for that era. It was wartime, after all, at least for Canada at that point. Uh, not the United States yet. True enough. True enough. Canada would have been at war. The U.S. was not quite yet. We're still a ways away from Pearl Harbor. That's right. Exactly. That, that's exactly right. So when they left, and you, you also have to think about the weather reporting for the day, and uh, the weather reports indicated maybe there might be some snow and, and really nothing dramatic. And uh, But I also get the idea that many of those captains and navigators from the day kind of ignored a lot of those weather reports. And I, I don't know that that's completely... Um, I mean, the weather report certainly didn't match what the weather ended up being. So maybe not completely unusual for someone to look at that weather report and think, OK, well, we'll see what actually happens. And uh, they they did get out you know, into the lake and the weather was getting worse, more dramatic. Um, fortunately for them, there's another sidebar to this story. Another Canadian ship, the Collingwood, a much bigger uh, steel freighter, was out there following them. Uh, interestingly enough, the Arlington had... Uh, higher levels of technology than the Collingwood did. It had a, a direction finder on board. It had ship to shore 
radio communications. Uh, so the Collingwood did stay relatively close to the Arlington. And in the end, that was absolutely fortunate for the crew of the Arlington. Um, so here you've got these two ships uh, headed across the lake. Weather's getting pretty bad. The first mate, a man by the name of Junus Maxey, he was also like Captain Burke. They'd both been on the lakes for just about three decades, if not a little bit more. They had a lot of experience, both of them. Uh, and using that experience, uh, first mate Maxey decided, I'm going to take a little bit safer of a route. Instead of cutting right across the lake, I'm going to hug the shoreline, uh, that Canadian North Shore, use the uh, the mainland there. They could get in the lee of the wind. The waves aren't going to be as dramatic. Maybe they'll just have a little bit easier of a ride. Um, and so they did that. That's not unusual. Even the Edmund Fitzgerald and the Arthur M. Anderson, you know, on that fateful night, November mm -hmm. 9th, November 10th, 1975, they did the same thing. They hugged that Canadian shoreline. Makes sense. Makes sense. If the I mean, this is April 30th. So, but it makes sense that if the weather's bad, that you would hug the shoreline. But the captain, the captain overturns, he, he overrules. He absolutely did. So he must have sensed because he had been in his cabin again, another side story here. He had, which was highly unusual for him. Uh, but he had, he'd stayed in his cabin for most of the trip. Um, and so when he in all likelihood noticed a difference in the wave action, um, something was changing. He decided to go up to the pilot house, find out what was going on. He found out what was happening and saw that they had switched up course. He, at that point, countermanded the first mate's order and, get back on your original course, Whitefish Point, Whitefish Bay, and eventually, you know, the Sioux Locks and so on, uh, headed to Owen Sound with that full load of wheat they had as a cargo. So um, they end up getting back on that course. Now, roughly an hour later, the captain goes back down to his cabin. Uh, the ship is getting beaten up a little bit. Uh, the first mate, and there, there was an investigation that followed the shipwreck. And in that investigation, the first mate made a reference to as much as 10 feet of water at certain times crossing the deck. And at one point, he said as much as 20 feet, he said, which is crazy. Uh, that's a crazy amount of water to be rolling over the deck. And, and his greatest concern at that point was damage being done to the hatches um, that would allow water to get in. So he, he wanted to see what was happening with those hatches. So he ordered another course change. This time turning the ship into the wind, hopefully lessening those boarding seas going over the ship itself, going over that main deck. Uh, captain picked up on another course change, went back up into the pilot house, countermanded that order as well. So they were not able to get out and inspect those hatches. It, and that led to some problems. Bruce Lynn is executive director of the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society. We're talking about the discovery of the wreckage of the Arlington just recently. So uh, 84 years after it went down on April 30th, 1940, uh, they found the wreckage at the bottom of Lake Superior, about 600 feet uh, down and about 35 miles. I'm using I'm using the I'm using the Imperial <laughs> anyway, the, um, <laughs> okay. but, not, but not about 60 kilometers from shore, but 200 meters down. Um just on the fate of this ship. So, so what happens, of course, is that as you're as it's moving through this storm and it's getting worse and worse, eventually the crew figures this ship's going down and they start to bail before Captain Burke says anything, right? 
You know, that's exactly right. So the first mate and uh, Captain Burke, you know, had obviously been having their discussions. Uh, the first mate wasn't really able to get out into the deck, but he could see that some of the tarps had been torn off. They used to use these tarps and they would cinch them down over the hatch covers that would, you know, give them a little more water resistance, so on. Uh, but the crew that really knew what was happening were the people down in the engine room at that point. And there was no communications at that time between the engine room and the pilot house. Typically, you would have had to have gone up across the deck, which no one was going to do at that point, right. to communicate one end of the ship to the other. So the, the chief engineer uh, was keeping an eye on what was happening. And uh, they, they were continually hearing rivets popping, uh, which that in and of itself wasn't super unusual. These ships would kind of twist a little bit. And occasionally, rivets come flying out. Uh, they could hear some cracking noises, which I think gave them more pause for concern. But the biggest concern was the water that was coming in and the fact that that ship was carrying wheat. Uh, there's a theory that that cargo was swelling right. uh, with, with the water getting in. And then the other thing that was happening is it had a list and that list was getting worse. And at one point, the chief engineer just came to the conclusion, uh, we can't get to the pile house, but we need to let them know that this ship is sinking. And uh, what the chief engineer did is he had a uh, the ability to sound the whistle, the abandoned ship, the steam whistle. And that's exactly what he did. And now at this point, the first mate was up in the pilot house. He heard that the Collingwood was nearby, but the first mate wanted to make sure that the Collingwood and the captain was coming up at about the same time, coming back into the pilot house. He sounded the distress signal. Collingwood heard that over the storm, fortunately, and was able to maneuver and get a little bit closer to the Arlington itself. And this is where some unusual, maybe more unusual things started happening. Uh, there was only one, at least from the documents that I've read, one serviceable lifeboat on the ship at that point. The other one had been damaged. The crew starts making their way aft to the stern to get to that lifeboat. Uh, the wheelsman is the last person, in addition to Captain Burke, that's in the pilot house. Uh, the wheelsman is about to depart. Uh, a conversation, uh, probably brief, took place between him and Captain Burke. Captain Burke made it clear that he was not leaving the ship. Uh, the wheelsman determined that the, he probably, who knows, this is speculation, but yeah. probably figured he wasn't going to change the captain's mind. Started making his way back to the lifeboat, got into the lifeboat. The first mate asked him, where's the captain? And uh, they had their discussion. And now, one thing we have to keep in mind here, this would have been a pretty dramatic trip going from the pilot house to the stern to get to that lifeboat. They're in an open boat. Your ship is already sinking because of how bad this weather really is. Uh, and you're in an open lifeboat. So they probably knew that we've got to get going here if we're going to get away at all. So they cast off away from the uh, away from the Arlington itself. The Collingwood is standing by. This is about 5.15 a.m. on May 1st, 1940. And about 15 minutes later, they're just closing in the Collingwood. Uh, and the at that point, the Arlington rolls over and, uh, and sinks. Takes Captain Burke with it, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And a couple things happened as that lifeboat was pulling away. And if you think about, I've used this analogy half a dozen times today of a car accident where picture five people see an accident and you get five different interpretations of right. what happened in that accident. And, and to a certain degree, that's what happened with the crew on the lifeboat. Some of them saw the captain of the pilot house, uh, saw that as a uh, you know heroic action. Perhaps he was steadying the ship while the lifeboat safely got away. Some of them saw him 
step out of the pilot house and then fell down. I mean, they went as far as describing that scene and then making his way to his cabin. Um, some of the other ones saw him stand out by the pilot house door and waving goodbye or just waving to the, the crew, uh, which that, 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 that resulted in some speculation as well during the investigation as to, was he waving goodbye? Was he waving them to them to come back? What, what was he doing? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that was it. As soon as that ship went to the bottom, obviously Captain Burke right. with it. Well, Bruce, as always, it's always fascinating to talk about you with, uh, talk to you about this stuff. Thanks so much for your time. Hey, thank you so much for having us again. And, and uh, keep us in mind, we have another shipwreck that we have not announced yet. Um, we're still doing some research on that, but maybe we'll talk again about that one. We're going to talk about love this half hour. Uh, love and money, to be specific. Those often, an often tough combination, sort of a uh, tough combination of topics, isn't it? It can be a bit of a thorny one, love and money. Uh, I suspect many of us probably scaled back a little on the Valentine's gift giving this year given how expensive everything has gotten of late so we thought we'd not only talk about relationships and dating on this february 14th which we will by the way because this is a very busy year for those who hand out this kind of advice i actually this is the story of how we we contacted demona yesterday so i, I sent her an email i essentially said listen i understand this is probably the busiest day of the year for you but would you have a few moments for me uh tomorrow to talk on valentine's day and she said yeah i have a few moments just uh, let me know what time works so it all worked out and i was eternally grateful of course that she would take the time on what can be the busiest day of the year uh here are some of the things that that i found out just by reading what she's been writing of late I mean, when I was growing up, talking money on a first date, I mean, forget it, right? It used to be an absolute no-no. Uh, or even in the first while of knowing somebody, that's changed, apparently. That's changed a lot of late. It's not just about being more open about your feelings, but also about your finances right off the bat. And Valentine's Day, says Demona, is actually an opportunity not just to start off a relationship on the right foot, but perhaps to get an existing relationship back on track when it comes to things financial. Um, she is a celebrity dating coach. She's been coaching singles on how to find love online and offline for years now. Her articles appear regularly in the LA Times, the Washington Post. She's been a contributor to the Drew Barrymore Show, National Public Radio. Uh, her podcast is really great. It's called Dates and Mates. And uh, she's written a new book called F the Fairy Tale. And Devota Hoffman joins me now. Thanks for your time today. Thank you for having me, Ben. Valentine's Day, of course, has, you know, it always has people talking about relationships and so on. I was curious from your perspective, you must, what kind of, do you get different questions at this time of year than you get the other 11 months and two weeks? Well, I find that at the start of the year, we call it dating Sunday, the first Sunday of the year. That's when the floodgates open and everybody starts coming to me for dating advice. And then it's just a mad dash to get all the way till Valentine's Day. So the questions do vary from year to year, but I find that that cycle is pretty consistent. Yeah. Well, tell me about this year, because I know that when I read people's blogs and such as yours, you do get a sense that, you know, it's not as if the world doesn't exist inside the dating world. All the things that are happening around us filter through into the whole uh, dating scene and questions people have. What trends have you noticed since last February 14th, for instance? Well, there have been a lot of new trends around just defining relationships like we're seeing this trend of living apart together, lat relationships and even long distance dating. And I'm seeing even more international relationships because we are embracing new technology. There's also been a big rise in AI dating and people using AI to write their dating profiles and even <laughs> to 
figure out what to say in the first message. Ultimately, I think it's for the best because it allows us to have a higher level of connection when we get off of the tool. We need to get off of all of these devices and really drive towards real human connection. And then we have to face all of the th- the real world challenges that we're facing, like finance and dating has become a real hot button topic this year. Yeah, that's the one that sort of led me led me to because I thought this year, with all the concerns over cost of living and so on, this is a topic that's not just about dating; it's about relationships. Period, and the financial stress that uh, that what we've seen over the past couple of years with the cost of living crisis must have introduced itself in just about every relationship, whether they're twenty five year marriages or a first date. Yeah, and even I was saying about lat relationships before. A lot of people are feeling like I worked so hard to build this thing that I don't want a partner to come in and take my stuff. So (laughs) there's been a trend towards splitting finances and even towards using new tools to manage finances and talk about finances in relationships. So it used to be like, don't talk about money on a first date and don't offer to split the check. Those rules are are really gone. And now I'm seeing that people are really looking for more equality partnerships. And they're even using different tools to send money to a partner, using tools like Wise, if they have a partner that's across borders. They can send money easily. And that is actually a token of love. It's not just uh, just sending money. It's really a way to say, I love you. Interesting. Because of course, you know, I grew up in, I'm, I'm a Gen Xer. So, you know, we were sort of built in the same mold as our parents where you never talked about money in a relationship, especially not early on. And even when you sort of would move in together, for instance, you mightn't have, you mightn't even know how to sit down and have that conversation. It's interesting to hear that, that a new generation or newer generation's are being a little bit more open about these topics because they matter. They matter. They matter deeply. Yeah, we are seeing something we're calling financial flames. This is singles who are looking for someone not only to to just split the bills, right, but really looking for shared financial goals. And I talk in F the Fairy Tale about having shared goals and shared values. And money is really a proxy for so many other things and for for our beliefs. We we show what we care about based on what we spend money on. I love that singles now are bringing that into the conversation and looking for a partner who's not just going to agree with them on social issues or politics, but who actually has the same financial goals in mind. Yeah, oftentimes spending speaks louder than words, doesn't it? It does. Actions speak louder than words. Money speaks louder than words. And we, we do see that financial infidelity is actually as challenging to a relationship as even physical infidelity. Someone hiding how they're spending their money is really injurious to a relationship. So the more transparency that you can have and having the right tools and tech stack to bring that conversation to the forefront is really important in today's dating and relationship scene. So you want to get off on the right foot with someone who you feel like you can trust financially. At the same time, if you've been with someone for a long time, and I know money often comes into play when it comes to the breakdown of relationships, uh, and, and part of the issue now with things that are so expensive and you know people are, are struggling to afford lots of stuff these days, the breakdown of a relationship can be financially disastrous. So you want to avoid that, obviously. I mean, that's a huge, trying to maintain a open and healthy financial relationship can save a lot of pain in the long run. Yes, Transparency is really key. And it is important, even if you've been in a relationship for a long time, to maintain some financial independence. 
I see that a lot of relationships of the past, a lot of them actually started earlier. We are seeing a trend towards people waiting to partner and then get married and blend finances. When you look at prior generations, if you were just starting your career, it was very easy to just blend and be in a joint account. And that was the end of that. But now that couples are starting from a place of already having individual assets, it's really important to maintain that independence, but also to have transparency around the shared finances that you have. Yeah, I suppose on Valentine's Day, it takes a little romance out of it because it's a bit like a negotiation, isn't it? But, but ultimately, um, it, it's what works. I like the fact that you pointed out that Valentine's Day is not only a time for someone perhaps out on a first date or maybe this week at some point to get off on the right foot this way, but also for people who've been together for longer periods of time, maybe a few years, maybe much longer, to kind of get back on track too, that this is a good opportunity because it's a day where you sort of lavish things on, even though you mightn't have the means to do it, you try to lavish things. Maybe it's a good time to have that conversation. It's a good time to have the conversation, but also remember Valentine's Day is just today. And you also don't have to give into the, you know, the commerce and the the stories around Valentine's Day. So you can make the day special by having a date night at home. You can do do a picnic inside. You could do a sip and paint night in your own house. You can get creative about ways to show your partner you care about them without having to put yourself in the poor house just to say, (laughs) I love you. Demona Hoffman is a dating coach and host of the Dates and Mates podcast, author of a new book called F the Fairy Tale. Uh, it's a great title, by, by the way. Uh, where, what I mean, we were talking about money, and I guess that really fits into the whole forget the fairy tale part of this because it's so transactional in some ways. But you, you offered a lot of advice on how couples or people dating, for that matter, can figure out how to sort of get the financial relationship on the right path, even if it's wavered a bit. Because oftentimes that's one of the hardest things to talk about, even with someone you spend every day with. Yeah, money has a lot of emotion tied to it. And so does dating and relationships. So it makes sense that the two go hand in hand. I really look at it as empowering for a relationship. If you can find that common ground and talk about money, that will actually save a lot of challenges down the road because a lot of times when couples are arguing about money, you know, they say that 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 is one of the top things that couples argue about. And when we look at the stats, like Wise's social poll found that 65% of people believe it's important to have transparency around your partner's finances and how they manage money. So we really value that, but we also fear having disappointments and it keeps us from getting to the root of what's going on. Because when we're arguing about money, we're really arguing about something else. Yeah. uh, Yes. uh, It stands in for so many other things. I like this idea of creating a joint budget because oftentimes people don't do that. I mean, the idea that that your finances can be something that you share, that your goals are something that you can share uh, is a really important one. Yeah. I have to tell you, actually, a fun story. I found my budget for our honeymoon. My husband and I have been together uh, coming up on 17 years of marriage. Ah, Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. It was like a little time capsule, Ben, like to find what I valued at that point and how I created that experience of designing a honeymoon that was going to be memorable and set the stage for our future relationship. What did it look like? Where did you go? 
We went to Italy uh-huh. and uh, we did all kinds of fun things. Of course, the classic going to all of the architectural, you know, the the in, in Rome and seeing the Colosseum and all of that. Yep. But we also did a cooking class together. Oh. Uh, I don't cook at home. <laughs> <laughs> However, it was so thrilling to look back at the way that I spent my money and how organized I was about it. So when when you say, you know, it's not that romantic to talk about money, I really looked at it as the conduit to creating the memories. So it actually was extremely romantic. And I actually got a little bit misty even looking back at what we chose to spend it on and had new memories when I revisited that budget. It's just the way that you bring that. What it says about somebody, how they treat their money, which I've always found interesting, is so much about where they're from, what their parents were like. A lot of your relationship with money says a lot about you in many ways, and it's just good to know who that person is. They mightn't be exactly how you want them to be, but it's good to know that. And I think drawing up a budget for your honeymoon probably told the person you spent the last seventeen years with a lot about you too, right? I love that you brought in how our family structures and and attitudes about money and whether we have savings or not and our attitudes towards money get really deeply ingrained at a very young age. And I love that you brought that into the conversation because so much of dating is about telling our stories. I talk about that in F the Fairy Tale. Yeah. It's It's all about the stories we tell ourselves and we carry all of that into our future lives. Of course, you can get better with managing money. You can shift your beliefs around money, but it's always with you. All of those memories and experiences that you had with money early on really do imprint on you as an adult. So your advice on this Valentine's Day is if you're not, if you feel like your relationship isn't isn't even on a first date. The, the transparency issue is a big deal. I, one of the things that always comes up, I think you've been asked this a million times, uh, on a first date these days, and I haven't been on a first date in uh, in many, many, many years because we just celebrated our 10th wedding anniversary. Wh- who pays now these days? How, how does that work? That has changed so much. I've been right. coaching singles for the last 17 years, and it used to be cut and dry, the guy pays for the date. But now as I'm working with more LGBTQ singles, they're they're writing into the Dates and Mates podcast saying, wait a minute, <laughs> now who pays? <laughs> and uh, I've seen it land on either the person who asked for the date, who initiated first, or that you split. And it's not a big deal. And I do find this, this kind of splits along generational lines. Sometimes my older clients have a harder time embracing this. But the biggest thing that has shifted since I became a dating coach is the speed of dating, the volume of dating. So if you're going on two or three dates a weekend, which is like 10 times what I was going two on. Two or three dates ago, a weekend? Really? This is literally the norm, Ben. <laughs> if you're going on that many dates, you can't be paying for all of the dates yourself. So offering to split the bill used to mean, I'm not interested, don't even try it. But now it actually is kind of the beginning of that financial flame and the inspiration to be a contributor to the relationship. I'm asking this question tonight. Um, your favorite love song? <laughs> <laughs> the trick okay. question. Uh, I, gosh, so many as a love coach. I'm a huge Jason Mraz fan. Yeah. I'm yeah. actually my Funny, third my wife, My wife is a huge Jason Mraz fan and she played him all the time when we met. Maybe I should date your wife because my <laughs> husband went on our third date to a Jason Mraz concert 
and never again since I've seen him five more times. But he has this really beautiful song called Have It All. And it's just sort of an anthem of like, I believe in you. I want you to have it all. And like, I just am lucky to have you in my life. So can I get your wife's number? (laughs) Demona, it's been a great pleasure. Happy Valentine's Day. Thank you. Thank you. So you're trailing badly in the polls. You need suburban votes to have any chance of having a decent showing in the next federal election. So what might be the worst possible idea to throw out there? The kind of statement that just would drive, at no pun intended, drive everybody absolutely bonkers. The sort of claim that will land with such a thud, you would think it had been dropped from a great height. Well, Environment Minister and climate Environment and Climate Change Minister Stephen Gilbo has once again done just that. He seems to have a bit of a tendency to do this. Now, I get him a little bit because we kind of grew up in the same part of Montreal, so I get that he thinks you can bike everywhere and you know that it's all great because he lives in a city like that. But almost every other Canadian doesn't, or most of us don't. I still do, but that's another story. Um, this one happened during a Monday press conference on public transit in Montreal. Gilbo is quoted uh, as saying by the Montreal Gazette, he was doing this live from Ottawa on a live feed, quote, our government has made the decision, our government has made the decision to stop investing in new road infrastructure, to stop investing in new road infrastructure. Of course, we will continue to be there for cities, provinces, and territories to maintain the existing network, but there will be no more envelopes from the federal government to enlarge the road network. So, of course, people are like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? What do you mean no more road, no more money for any road network? I mean, this is Canada after all. We're the second biggest country on the planet. You're bringing all kinds of new people in. There's housing development going on. I realize you don't need roads for everything, but it just seemed absolutely ludicrous. He said, the analysis we have done is that the network is perfectly adequate to respond to the needs that we have. Uh, Spoken like someone who's never been in traffic on the 401, right? Or or on the DVP in Toronto. Uh, Needless needless to say, no Valentine's cards today for Minister Gilbo from Ontario Premier Doug Ford, who said Wednesday he was gobsmacked by the notion that a federal minister said the government won't invest in new roads or highways. Um, And here is federal conservative transport critic Mark Stahl. Uh, It's a very extreme policy that will keep Canadians stuck in traffic. That seems to be the goal here is to drive people out of their cars. And that's an extreme position. Uh, Yeah, it is. So perhaps um, it's no surprise that given that that reaction, uh, the man who's often likes to talk about bicycles was backpedaling fast today. Um, Stephen Gilbo was asked about this, of course. And here's what he had to say. What I said is, and, I, and I, I, I specified that I should have been more specific in, in, in that conference that I, that I gave last week in, in Montreal. I was referring specifically to projects like the Troisième Lien. But in that same conference, I specified that we still have funds, obviously, to maintain uh, and, and enhance our, our, our road network across the country. But I was talking specifically about projects like the Troisième Lien that the, the, the CAC government in Quebec wants to, wants to move forward with. You might need some deciphering as to what he was talking about there. The third link, or the troisième lien, and the CAC is the Coalition Avenir Québec, the, the 
party that's running Quebec right now. They're looking at building a new bridge across uh, the St. Lawrence from Quebec to Lévis, I guess, which is just across the way. It's a big, expensive project. They, The provincial government wants it done. The federal government thinks it's not necessary. So that's what he says he was talking about. But you kind of always have to take someone at face value when they say something the first time, right? I think what's happened here, the big problem, is that this has become something where, I mean, it's one thing to accuse a government of not liking cars or being anti-car. It's another thing to come out and say, we're not going to build any more roads. <laughs> really? We're not, we're not going to finance any more roads. It seems just absolutely ridiculous. Anyway, we thought we would check in with Matt uh, Simiotechi. He's a professor of geography and planning and a director of the Infrastructure Institute at the University of Toronto, just to figure out if he could decipher what this is all about and if it is as ludicrous as it sounds at first at first hearing. Uh, Matty, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, this was uh, this seemed like an ill-advised comment, uh, regardless of what you think the future may look like. Uh, what did you make of, of, of Minister Gilbo's statement? His first, let's talk about his first statement before they started to clarify about not investing in any new road infrastructure. That's how I read it. So that, as a general statement, really came uh, across as challenging, especially given the scale of our country, given that there are many uh, rural and remote areas that have uh, that don't have good road access and where there are uh, there is a need for investment. As this started to get clarified, uh, we started to hear more about large road projects. Uh, and then you could start to understand a bit more of the context and the contours of what was being talked about here. And in particular, uh, it, it appears we're talking about uh, projects like uh, the third crossing uh, in Quebec City, uh, and perhaps some of the big mega projects that the Ford government is proposing here in Ontario, it started to become uh, clear what, in fact, he might have been uh, speaking about. So listeners understand, uh, and I don't think it's, it's a tricky one, what role does the federal government play in road building? Because I always thought of roads as being provincial. I mean, clearly there are federal, there are, there are highways and so on, but I always thought of it being mostly a provincial municipal thing. What role does the federal government play in this? So most roads are a provincial jurisdiction and then municipalities also then invest and in some cases own uh, local roads and uh, major roads in their regions as well. But the federal government then comes in as an investor uh, and they do invest and co-invest alongside uh, provincial governments in some projects and in some major projects. So exa for example, there was an upgrading of, of, of a highway here in, in the, the greater Toronto area and the federal government had some money in that project. The federal government also invests in uh, major bridges that cross federal waterways. Uh, so we've seen, uh, for example, the Champlain Bridge right. in the Montreal area uh, and also uh, the Windsor Crossing. There's a new bridge being built there that the federal government has major investments in. Uh, but for the most part in our major cities, these are provincial responsibilities that then on a case-by-case -case basis and in some cases uh, through uh, program funding can get money for upgrades and expansions as well. Right. I guess his line to the quote published in the Montreal Gazette was, there'll be no more envelopes from the federal government to enlarge the road network. I can see why why that would be taken badly from the get-go. That being said, I mean, we've talked, I mean, obviously we've spoken to, say, the government of, uh, of the Northwest Territories. They had a huge problem this summer trying to evacuate people from the wildfire situation. One of the big problems there is not enough, not enough road for the population, right? When the government says something like this, I think the first thing people think is, well, wait a second, we still use cars and we still need roads. So I don't know what you're basing this no more money for road infrastructure on, even if it's being walked back and clarified now. 
these big declarative statements are always risky business. And for sure, that was one of the projects that came to my mind first was uh, cities uh, that experienced uh, forest fires where maybe there was only one road in and one road out, and that posed a safety issue. And then there are rural and remote communities that are not connected uh, very well, and that uh, would really benefit, especially in a warming climate, uh, as the ice roads are not engaging and not not freezing over for uh, either at all or for as long. But I think as this has become clarified, what we're really talking about and what he was intending to speak about was these big urban mega projects, especially uh, around the peripheries of some of our big urban regions. Uh, These are multi-billion dollar mega projects and uh, they do then push out into uh, more uh, suburban areas and often into uh, more agricultural areas or unbuilt areas. And and I think what he was getting at is the federal government was not going to provide funding uh, to start to build these new projects, which also then have a pattern of uh, starting the next wave of uh, urban sprawl. Right. So no more sprawl, no more build it, they will come sort of, or and with the, when it comes to roads, build it and they're already there as a rule. But of course, the reaction to some extent, that's understandable. The reaction uh, from the provinces, specifically Ontario, for instance, uh, was pretty, pretty quick. I think, I think Doug Ford said he was gobsmacked. This politically, I mean, keep in mind, he's not the transportation minister, he's the environment minister. But, uh, but this was one of those things that would have not landed well in many provincial capitals, I suspect. For sure. Roads and and the car is a major wedge issue in Canadian politics. Two thirds of Canadians live in a suburban area and many more live in uh, more rural parts of the country uh, where the car is important. The car is often uh, the primary and in many cases only way uh, that people can get around. Uh, And uh, both their experiences and uh, their travel patterns are based on the car uh, and they are experiencing more and more congestion. And uh, this is, I think, what uh, the premier uh, here in Ontario and elsewhere was uh, responding to that for for many of the politicians, they see building more roads as both uh, a way to address the interests of their constituents, but also to win votes. Building highways has been popular in this country. This has been uh, one of the key uh, issues that that politicians run on. You hear it time and again, we will get this road built. Doug Ford ran on a campaign platform called Get It Done. Uh, Some of that was public transit. A lot of that was to improve and make make it cheaper and uh, easier to drive uh, in a context where, where congestion is uh, really uh, challenging right across the country. So I think that's why this comment in particular is so sensitive and is raising uh, such specific issues because it evokes this idea of a war on the car. Uh, and that, that war uh, is waged against many Canadians, uh, or at least is perceived to be waged against many Canadians uh, who, who use the car uh, as their primary mode of getting around. Right. And, and especially now that we're in a bit of, a, obviously, in a housing crunch, we talk about that all the time. Not that we shouldn't be trying to build housing where you know, transportation is already available, but but you know, one would imagine that that's not always going to be the case. Now, I know this applies to much bigger projects than this, but it does. You know, if you're going to increase the housing stock, chances are you're going to need more roads. Well, this, I think this is what's so interesting about this uh, point is that actually building these uh, roads uh, that are being proposed in urban areas, so we're not talking about the rural ones or in other parts of the country, these big urban roads actually don't solve the problem. They are expensive. Right. They lock in urban sprawl. Uh, they induce more demand. Uh, and ultimately, they end up more congested. So they're not, and the evidence on this is very clear uh, from past experience. And yet what we find is that uh, they're still uh, popular and they're used uh, as a as 
as a political wedge uh, around this uh, staying of the war on the car. So uh, really, uh, we're also talking about the types of communities we're going to be building. Are we going to continue to sprawl outwards? The roads really are the vehicle that then enables uh, and, and, and stimulates all that additional uh, low density uh, sprawling development at the peripheries of our region, which then lock in another generation of car dependence uh, and the congestion that that causes. Keep in mind that the roads that people are driving on these, these additional, these new uh, mega highways in our urban regions, we're not expanding the arterial roads in the cities themselves. So it's essentially like expanding out the outside of a funnel while keeping uh, the spout the same size. Uh, the congestion will return and it will return back worse, but uh, still politically, uh, it's, and for those who are sitting in their cars and stuck in traffic, it can be really seductive to say, why can't we just widen this highway and let all of us move uh, just that uh, much faster? Maddie Simiotechi is with us, Professor of Geography and Planning and Director of the Infrastructure Institute at the University of Toronto. Uh, the Environment Minister finds himself sort of backtracking uh, after making some comments earlier this week about how the federal government uh, would not be spending, not be investing big money into big projects involving uh, roads, essentially, bridges across uh, across spans, new highways, big new highways. I mean, these aren't like, these aren't little projects or things to provide better access to the north or so on. These are about putting, spending more, investing more money in big new highway projects for a city like Toronto or an area like Ontario, for instance. Maddie, I mean, you've already, I think there is a perception out here, and and rightfully so to some extent because of the way he uses his words sometimes, that the environment minister lives in this kind of Stray. I mean, the, the opposition leader was talking about about you know wanting, him wanting to everyone to sort of ride bikes and live in mud huts, right? There is this visceral reaction to that kind of language. You would think, even if he, even if his argument is fundamentally correct, that there must be a better way politically to present it to people. I think oftentimes when you look at the postcards of our uh, big cities, you see these glimmering uh, skylines of high rises and office towers. And uh, and that gives you the sense that we're a highly urban country. And in fact, the stats do show that. They bear that out, that uh, you know we have upwards of 80% of our population living in cities. But when you drill down a bit further, what you find is that two thirds of Canadians are living in uh, more suburban areas. And many of those uh, suburban areas are highly auto-oriented yeah. and that most people are commuting uh, by car and using the car for many of uh, their uh, daily trips. And so what you find then is that that the car is central to how they get around uh, and becomes part of both uh, their personal identity and becomes an area that can be hugely frustrated, frustrating when uh, it's challenged. And some of the language that is inflammatory, I mean, if you ever uh, want to heat up the call-in shows uh, on a radio program, just talk about bike lanes or the war on the car. Uh, this has gotten many politicians elected in the past. Uh, and it, it's probably kept uh, many radio shows afloat uh, for long periods of time. It is just hugely no divisive. Comment. No comment. No comment. <laughs> it is just hugely divisive in this country yeah. uh, because it's so much of people's time. I mean, we are we are jammed in traffic uh, right across the country. We struggle uh, with congestion. Toronto was just uh, found to have the third worst congestion in the entire world. And every right. time one of these surveys comes out, it's worse than the last one. It's no wonder. And I think what people are finding is that as much as they recognize that uh, getting around by car uh, may have uh, its challenges, the options are not there uh, and and the alternatives are not there. And especially in the communities where they live, where the car has been really locked in uh, by the type of design. And so I think that's that's part of uh, what fuels this this disconnect in some of these discussions, that, that the alternatives just don't uh, seem to come fast enough and don't seem to be realistic for many people. Yeah, I always notice that when you fly, when you fly out of Pearson, for instance, uh, you you right away realize how 
low how how little density there is in Toronto, considering how big it is. And by little, I mean not if you're not if you're sitting on the Don Valley Parkway, but but still that there is in fact the the glistening towers and the urban Toronto is far off in the distance. And then there's just everywhere the eye can see there's suburb, right? And that's really what Toronto is. If you've spent time there, um, where do you think Gilbo is coming from this then? Uh, because I think his idea of everyone sort of putting on their bike helmets and making, you know, the quick bike lane trip to the office. And, you know, I mean, I, I live in an area that, that in Victoria, where there is a bit of that, and there's that mentality around it as well. But then you look at, at the rest of the country and you think, okay, well, fine and dandy, but it's just not feasible in the short term. So let's all sit down and figure out how this, how to make sure that this is not seen as a war on the car, but on, but a way of making your driving experience better. I think that's exactly it. I think we need to uh, have less uh, shouting and more listening. This is a topic that becomes very heated uh, very quickly, uh, in part because it's such fertile ground in election campaigns. It has been a topic. Uh, Rob Ford here in Toronto, for example, ran on ending the war on the car. That was right. his uh, political dynamic. But that because so many people are uh, uh, dependent on their car, because of the way that Canada uh, has designed our cities, that we do have these pockets of density surrounded by uh, these uh, low uh, density, uh, more sprawling areas where public transit is poor and uh, and other modes, and there's not a mix of, of, of land uses. That's just created these real challenges. And I think we it's, it's incumbent on all of us to listen uh, to the experiences of people living uh, in uh, different types of communities to understand uh, the challenges that they face. Yeah, it's it's hard to understand a country where you get off at most airports here, you know, say maybe Vancouver, and there's no real viable public transit, good public transit into the city. And, and then to have your environment minister come out and say, well, we're not building any more roads. I mean, I feel, just feel like we're just not there yet when it comes to offering the alternatives. People who drive, who have to drive to work every single day know there is no alternative to that. You know, and when you look at the statistics too, what you often find is that uh, the trip uh, by uh, public transit would take much longer than it does by car. Uh, and in some cases, it's either very challenging. It would be a number of uh, changes of vehicles uh, or transfers. If you were to ride a bike, that can be challenging. And for many people, that's not a viable option. If you're going yeah. with kids, if you're uh, if you have a, a type of uh, disability, uh, or if it's late or, or snowing, uh, for many people, they're not going to do that. It doesn't mean we should give in and just say that 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 we're going to uh, blanket our cities uh, with highways uh, that has i think that's what's key here is that that has not been the solution we're going to need to plan our way out uh, and really if, if we want to get very contentious uh, that on specific corridors that are heavily congested road tolling has been one of the few mechanisms that has actually uh, reduced congestion but again that just feeds into this uh, war on the car a type of mentality uh, and has been uh, a political non-starter in much of canada yeah, that third rail. Uh, Maddie, as always, thank you. Thanks for having me. When you're ill or injured, there's a period of time that you do need to wallow. But there's a period after where you need to pick yourself up. And Invictus Games allows you to jump out of that rush. And soldiers really need that. Everything you need is already within you. So many of you have been to the darkest places imaginable. But your mission to heal and grow has been a shining example to us all. The Invictus Games Vancouver Whistler 2025 will be the first time the Invictus Games introduces winter sport. My hope is that every memory made brings a smile to your face. It takes a lot of heart, it takes a lot of soul, but if you want a place to belong, this is the place to be. 
It's off to Vancouver Whistler 2025. And there you have it. It is indeed a year from now that the Invictus Games will be coming to British Columbia. They'll be held in both uh, Whistler and in Vancouver between, I think it's February the 8th and February the 16th, 2025. And this is a big project. This is a Prince Harry project, right? So, of course, who is spending Valentine's Day in Whistler? Prince Harry and his wife, Megan. There are pictures, of course. I knew that the story had changed a little bit because there was a lot of stories in sort of the local media saying, oh, you know, they're coming. This will be held next year. So they're coming for some, they're going to be doing some uh, training on these new sports because they're introducing winter sports to the uh, Invictus Games for the first time. And so they're going to be training on those and sort of explaining to athletes from around, I think, 19 countries, athletes from 19 countries and coaches as well have come to Canada to sort of figure out what next year is going to look like and try and get used to some of these sports that have been introduced, including uh, skiing, alpine skiing, snowboarding, skeleton, uh, biathlon, wheelchair curling, uh, all kinds of different stuff. So it will be a slightly different look for the Invictus Games, which will be, uh, which are a really big deal, by the way. I mean, it's about, I think, 550 competitors from 25 nations uh, will take place. It, it will take part in them, which is a lot of people. And it's a big win for Canada as well. They haven't been held uh, in this country uh, before. I'm trying to remember if they've been held. They have been held outside of the UK. I think they've been held in a couple of different places Um Right, they've been held in the U.S. and Australia as well. Um, so that's a big deal when they come here. And, of course, Harry's here with Megan to test things out. Now, if you think back, now I know, I know Harry gets a lot of grief, right, these days, the whole relationship with his family and so on. But I remember when he first launched these games back in 2014, because I happened to be in England at the time working as a correspondent for CTV. And I remember when he launched them in 2014, they were first held between uh, in September of 2014 of that year. And uh, they were great. I mean, he had seen the Warrior Games in the US. He had, of course, been a, he was a serviceman himself. He had served in Afghanistan, knew people that had been injured and so on, and thought this would be a great idea to set something up for wounded warriors uh, to compete. Uh, to try and you know to try and come together again and sort of find purpose and find strength in competition and in the training to get there. So it's been a really wonderful competition for quite a while now, and now it's coming to Canada. So it's something to be excited about, not just the fact that we have uh, famous folks in Whistler. They're always famous folks in Whistler, but royalty in Whistler uh, tonight. Uh, by the way, just to give you a taste of what this is like, Canadian Armed Forces veteran Mike Bourgeois says, participating in the games back in 2022 allowed him to join a community of people with similar experiences and be connected to a support network. Most veterans that suffer with physical and mental wellness are not connected to support networks. So the whole learning journey of the Invictus program is about learning that you're not alone, learning that your families are not alone. And what often gets ignored is that friends and family of those who are suffering are also suffering. Nobody can get through a games, whether they be connected or just spectating and not have goosebumps and, and, and your eyelids are sweating. <laughs> It's just, it's, it's not possible. I've never met anybody, and we've probably met a thousand people by this point involved. I've never met anybody that hasn't said the same thing about the experience. It's just, there's something just so stirring. Uh, they are. I witnessed the first ones back in 2014, and there is something really special about them. Scott Moore has been a big name in Canadian broadcasting for a very long time. He's CEO of these upcoming Invictus Games. He joins us now. Scott, I hear you've had a busy night. Thanks for joining. It's been a busy night, and uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, tell me a bit about the atmosphere, because, of course, all the tabs have pictures of Harry and Meghan, of course, as they will. They do mention the games, though, so it's always good when he shows up, because it does bring a lot of attention to what will be happening here next year. Well, he and Meghan obviously put a spotlight on these games, and it's not 
just a celebrity spotlight. This is a cause, as you were just talking about, that he believes in deeply. It's really personally important to him. So using his spotlight and Megan's spotlight to uh, shine on these veterans who have given uh, given to their communities and given to their countries and need an outlet as part of their personal healing journey is important. So, yeah, it was great to have them up here. And when you see them with the... Uh, with the veterans and the participants in these games, both sides of the conversation come alive. And it's, it's really special to see. I'll tell you, I've been involved now for only about two and a half weeks. And every day I get inspired by the people we meet, the folks that have been helped by the, by the games. And it's, it's just been a great journey for me. And I'm looking forward to, hosting what hopefully will be the best Invictus games ever. Yeah, I, I was I was reading that you had been brushing up on your royal protocol. You know, it's funny that uh, Prince Harry has never had a good relationship with the media necessarily. But when he's around other soldiers, when you see him interact, he's a different guy. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean he is, at heart in many ways, a veteran. And, and you see that when he's around other veterans. Yeah, and, and when he's around other veterans, we were talking about it tonight with the with some of the folks that saw him today, uh, he's just a regular guy. And I think he loves the fact that he's a regular guy to these former comrades in arms because hey, I don't know his life, but he's gone through it as not always the most regular guy because he's been a Royal. So I, I think he just appreciates the camaraderie. Indeed. I, I saw that he was doing a little sit skiing today. I mean, it's going to be a really interesting games because these are all sports that have not been part of this competition in the past. And you're introducing a lot. Of, it's going to have a real Canadian flavor to it. Yeah, this is the first ever winter Invictus Games. We've got uh, competition in alpine skiing, alpine snowboarding, uh, skeleton, biathlon and wheelchair curling. And in fact, tomorrow... Prince Harry is trying the skeleton. He's going down the, the loose track, is, not the whole loose track. He? It'll be interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, but this is a legacy that we want to leave as Vancouver Whistler, that uh, this will not be the only winter Invictus Games. Hopefully this will be the beginning of several winter Invictus Games. And uh, one of the moments that I just loved today, met uh, a young fellow from Team Nigeria, and his, his name is Peacemaker. That's what his parents named him. He lost a leg uh, to terrorism in Nigeria, the terrorist group Boko Haram. And he, he was out on one ski today. He was learning yesterday. And today he had the most incredible smile on his face. He is the perfect ambassador for what we're trying to do here because this is a part of his healing journey. And he, he just beamed when he was out there today. Uh, I hope uh, we get a chance to tell his story leading up to the games next year. Yeah, just so listeners understand, because I think this was often earlier on, you know, early on, it was associated mostly with Wounded Warriors, and that was from the American Warrior Games and so on. It has evolved quite a bit since then into something far broader and far more, in, in many ways, perhaps more inclusive. Yeah, it's service members. So it, it, it is people mostly from the military, but in some countries they they bring in first responders. But uh, there's, there is a camaraderie that I haven't seen in other big games. I've been lucky enough to do 11 Olympic games. And uh, the, the teams, for the most part, uh, stay amongst their national teams. 
I walked into the Sheraton Wall Center on Sunday when the teams were being fitted for their equipment, and the team from Australia is sitting with the team from Estonia, and the team from Italy is sitting with the team from the UK, and they're all they're all from a shared background that, as you said a little earlier, isn't a common shared background. They've gone through mental challenges or physical challenges because of their service, and they're getting a chance to to meet others around the world that are going through the same things that I, that they are. Uh, any challenges ahead? Because I know putting on something like this is always a bit of a challenge, and I know there were some a, a few bumps, a few bumps in the road early on. Does everything look like it's it's on track? You've got a year to go. Now you've got uh, athletes from all around the world here, sort of doing some training. You must be getting a fairly good sense. I know you've only been there for a few weeks, but a fairly good sense of what uh, what direction this is heading in. Sure. Well, I, I walked in. I was thrilled to find that we are ninety five percent to our uh, our revenue goal. We've got great support from uh, the government of Canada, the province, the two municipalities. We have great presenting sponsors in ATCO and Boeing. We have more sponsors that we're announcing over the next little while. So we will, I think, almost certainly exceed our revenue targets, which will allow us to do even more great things. And we're being hosted for these games by our, uh, our four First Nations around the Lower Mainland. That's been a wonderful partnership for us. So, yeah, the games are in good shape. And, hey, there are always bumps along the way in doing any games, whether they're Olympics, Commonwealth Games, Pan Am Games, whatever they are. But, uh, yeah, we've got a, a really strong team. I'm excited by them. They all share a passion for this mission. And, you know, the, the mission of these games, I've said it a few times now that I've talked to people who have been in them, they change lives, but they also save lives. This is a real purpose for all the people that are involved. And I really want to, I want to send out a rallying cry to the, the, the fans and the supporters of the Lower Mainland to come out and be part of what I call the inspirational circle. These athletes will inspire us, but we can inspire them by showing up and giving them support by cheering them on in the stands. So tickets will be going on sale sometime late spring, early summer. Go to our website, InvictusGames2025.ca. You can sign up to be a volunteer if you want, but you can also, hopefully in the next uh, three or four months, buy tickets and come out and support these incredible athletes and participants. Yeah, and you put it well, because I remember covering the 2012 Olympics in London, and a few years later they were using many of the same venues to host the Invictus Games. And it's and we think of it sometimes, it's sort of, we think of it as a, there are sports in it, but it is not a sporting competition per se. No, this is uh, this is using sports for its transformative power. All of us who've played sports growing up know that it builds character, it builds a sense of community, it's a, it builds a sense of teamwork. But in this case, it's also building mental wellness, physical wellness, and as we talked about a couple of times already, just the the sense that you're part of a, a community and something bigger than yourselves. I guess the best way of putting it, and maybe one of the things that drew me to this, was when I was doing my research about the games, you know, the Canadian team doesn't choose the team based on who will win the most medals or who's the most gifted athlete. They choose the team based on who will benefit most from the experience in their physical journey or mental journey. And that tells you everything you need to know about these games. Well, Scott, I wish you the best of luck. Uh, and tomorrow, too, if Prince Harry is going to be doing some skeleton, I hope all's in good shape. And thanks so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. 
Well, I'm I'm telling you, they're not getting me on that skeleton. Uh, I'll no be way. carrying Harry on, but no, they're not getting no me way. on that thing. No, <laughs> we're Canadian. I'm like, good luck, Prince. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> thanks so much for your time tonight. All right. All right. Good night. <laughs>